Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 147, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, one large school district is now taking attendance while distance learning. What did they learn from that? And could COVID-19 be the straw that breaks the camel's back when it comes to the ACT and SAT? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, when it comes to reading skills, our guest is challenging us to go beyond phonics. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is April 17th, and we have our co-hostess with the mostess, Principal Christina Pollard. Christina, thank you for checking in with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing really good today. Has it um, been a smooth week so far? Which week are we in? I guess we're in week five. It's all... Um, This is week four. But you had a spring break in the mix. Is it still... Is it week... So it is week five if you include spring break, but for our area, it would be considered week four out of school. Are things still on track? Uh, I know we had... I guess we need to update folks with what we were impacted with this week. And I guess the Mm -hmm. biggest change was you, you had reacted to the no shelter order, I guess, over the past week or two. And then okay. they kind of made an official statement on the fact that school in Mississippi, we were like the last in the in the union to, to kind of make the decision. But uh, it is done for the year in the building. It is still going right. online and, and what other ways you have, right? So, so has that changed anything for you this week? Um, no, I'd like to say it's not as chaotic at this point. Um, we've had plenty of time to really unpeel what distance learning should look like, how to continue to support our students, as well as provide, um, you know, professional development and support for teachers, communicating with parents. I think that once our governor um, went ahead and announced that schools were closed for the remainder of the year, there were mixed emotions about it, but it is what's best for children. But I would just like to reiterate that educators are not on a vacation. We are working really more than before all through the evening and even on weekends as we're trying to take care of parents who are concerned or feeling, you know, inadequate or, you know, wanting more work for their students. Um, We are using Google Meet and Zoom and continuing to host um, short sessions with students so that they can see our faces and they can communicate with one another. So it's getting better. I think it's still shining a light on inequity in regards to um, Mm -hmm. technology and resources. But I also see um, strong collaboration and just a huge appreciation for what educators do every day. And I think right now, everyone just really wants to see um, the numbers really begin to flatten. They've, you know, coined that term, flatten the curve. I think we're all just really hopeful and waiting for that to occur so that we can make some future decisions. Because as of right now, we have not decided on uh, next steps for grading for the fourth term of the school year, um, exactly what graduation will look like because the class of 2020, um, of course, they're feeling um 
not necessarily left out, but a bit hurt about their future plans. And then, yeah, I mean, not that's tough. Graduates, can we can we talk about that? I mean, that's that's yeah, tough. we do need to talk about that. It's not just the graduates, though. You need to remember that at the end of the year, we always highlight those students who have excelled at the top of their classes in right. every grade, perfect attendance, just all of those end of year activities, which include field day, by the way, which is extremely important um, in elementary schools. It's right. a fun time to compete um, by grade level, and it's just a lot of you know teachers feeling like they're not getting a chance to say goodbye to the students they love yeah i had a senior last year and as i reflect on all the activities that were happening i I mean i I feel for those kids the class of 2020 um and you know and everyone we're all in this together and everyone has hardships and have had you know vacations canceled or or whatever but this is unlike anything ever they've you know would have probably had to experience as considered a loss right and and, i mean you're only a senior in high school one time so i I do you know they're on my heart and i I really uh feel for them um you you kind of were mentioning that we're, we're learning how um inequitable a lot of things are and internet access seems to be you know a pivotal point in that um Mm -hmm. i was reading a story out of miami dade where um i don't know if this was fair but but a news station miami dade started taking attendance miami dade county um i guess it was a few weeks ago they started it and so then a local news agency under the records request was like all right let's see how the attendance is and i'm sorry taking attendance (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So they would be I, like, I don't, a, I don't understand. How are they collecting attendance? There apparently was a virtual check-in that was happening, and um, oh. and they and they found out that a quarter of the students <laughs> enrolled in the forty public schools in that county did not log in for the virtual education at least once a day, or, or okay. at least one day last week, rather. And and that I don't know. That seemed extreme. I mean, is that too high of a bar to to be looking at attendance at, at that level? It is completely ludicrous, in my opinion, to even consider trying to take attendance. But if they were doing it as a way to research and determine um, exactly who has access or not, Mm -hmm. it's a clever idea. But if they're going to report it for ADA purposes, it's insane. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And and if it was for research, it does tell a good story. And and they apparently have done a lot to try to to reach out to those those areas where they've seen those lower numbers. Uh, And most of that's been what they believe is because of internet access or computer access and so forth. Um, and they have actually seen those numbers creep up too, apparently as they've gone later into April and they've even had one day where they were up to like 90% attendance and they, they felt like that was not a bad number under the circumstances. Absolutely not. It's great. Um, so the Austin school district kind of in the same vein. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of this online, but it looks like they've done it in wide scale. They rolled out a hundred school buses equipped with Wi-Fi for students. And they also distributed, you know, the computers to the that's, younger that's kids awesome. that didn't have it. Yeah. And I mean, I know there was a lot of talk about that in March. Like, Hey, maybe we can, you know, outfit these buses. Have you seen that done locally or anywhere in the state? Um, I don't have any evidence of buses being utilized within our state, but I will say that many school districts added, um, I'm not exactly sure of the exact term, but they added hotspots um, to each of their campuses where parents can pull into the parking lot and, you know, access the open Wi-Fi and help their students. I also want to reiterate something that we shared a few weeks ago, that a lot of the county supervisors are also adding hotspots to their local community centers. 
um, which is also, you know, a great spot for parents. It's not far from home. They feel safe in their area and they can go there and, and their child can have access. Yeah, I like that. And I feel like, you know, there's probably a lot of different buildings where you could do that, you know, public libraries. I mean, at the end of the day, the Internet's uh-huh. very much like a library, right? It's it's, it's the digital exactly. version. And it almost yeah. seems like those type of pl- places should be beaming as much Wi-Fi as possible outside. I think the everyone is trying. Everyone that has the capability of providing free open access, I think they're trying to do just that. Um, I think the biggest issue is going to be actually having a device to connect to the free Wi-Fi. Because even if they have a cell phone, mm-hmm. it's still difficult on a tiny cell phone to try to you know, complete classwork. Now, you can participate in your Zoom or Google Meet calls. And that's one of the best things that children can do right now, just so they can stay um, connected and still feel a part of their classroom culture. But for the most part, we just really need to give students what they need. And so our district in particular has decided that we are not going to discontinue the paper packets. We right. are not. And so here's the details of how Austin pulled it off. They they got a grant, so that helps. They had $600,000 from an educational technology provider named, wow. named Khajiit. So that's that's the, the first hurdle they had to clear. And then they outfitted 110 buses with the Wi-Fi, and they put them in neighborhoods and apartment complexes where they identified the highest need for internet access. So there was some strategy strategy there. And then they roll those buses out and they're there every weekday from 8am to 2pm. So I guess it's just basically like a, a work shift for for some employee or, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of get those buses. I think that's amazing, though. It, it is. This is great. And that's I'm kind of going through the details just in case if another district has the means to pull this off. Um, I think many districts will have the means. Um, if you had an opportunity to glance at the CARES Act, um, of the course, there's a portion in there dedicated to education, and there are some stipulations with that funding that school districts are going to be receiving soon. They must focus on distance learning support. So really soon, school districts who may not have had any resources whatsoever are going to have an opportunity to prepare for you know f- the future in regard to um, distance learning and all of their students and teachers. That's another thing we keep forgetting. There are many teachers that do not have access or computers at home either. Right. And and in this case, the one thing that Austin did, which was I would kind of even open it up more, is they want school issued or, or school registered computers. They're the only ones that can connect to these hotspots. And apparently the eight through twelve graders already had those devices. And then they oh, dis- they distributed th- those devices to looks like grades three to seven. So um tested grade levels which really need to master those skills. That's that's great. Right. I wish though they would just open it up to any device, but I guess for security reasons, they had to probably be careful with that. Well, remember, we had an episode um, some time back where we talked about protecting student data and student information. So I understand while they're doing that, those students are logging in, they're using video chat and all of those things. And so you've got to keep them protected. Right. It's just too many hackers out there right now just really trying to take advantage of this situation. Um, So for your district, do you know, I know you aren't taking attendance, do you know what type of engagement you guys are having yet? I can only speak for my area because I personally ride a bus each week during meal delivery. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, we don't bring back (laughs) but a few meals and we only bring back a few packets. So we are truly serving our community big time. And if there's any students that we're missing nine times out of 10, it's because they are not in the community. You know, we have some students who immediately at spring break went to visit grandparents and they're still in those different locations and or 
or of course you have some teenagers who just, you know, don't want to get up out of the bed on meal delivery day because we do go by pretty early in order to reach everyone before noon. Um, so that's just, you know, a few numbers, but every single week I really see so many of our students. I think that our goal to be, you know, visible every single week and our commitment to continue our meals because a lot of districts have stopped. Nick, a lot of districts said, okay, right. we're in shelter in place. The numbers are still rising. We're not doing meal delivery because we're putting our staff members at risk and we're not doing academic packets anymore either. We're just going to shut down. And our district has been committed to just keep it going. And, you know, we, we have some nervousness about it and we're trying to do our best with um, social distancing within the preparation um, rooms or whatnot. But I think the students truly look look for us. And when we haven't arrived yet, they're calling the office. The phone is ringing off the hook. The bus didn't come. And, you know, we have to tell them, yes, baby, the bus is on the way. Just be patient. Well, that's good that there is that engagement, though. You know, I mean, it just shows that that your your community, you know, is still part of the school. And you guys are very front facing where a lot of districts are digital only. You are actually in the community distributing both the academic and the food. Well, we know who we're serving and we know many of those parents, it's a low, my community is a low income community. You know, many of those parents don't have, uh, you know, vehicles to come back and forth. And unfortunately, while a lot of parents are not working right now due to the industry they may um, serve in, Mm -hmm. many are still working in some of those factories. They're not necessarily following um, the social distancing rules and they'll lose their job if they don't go to work. And so they're not able to come by the school. And we talked about that at the very beginning um, of our planning process. What about next year in terms of registration? Let's just say kindergartners, for example. I mean, are you... Is that a challenge for you guys? Do you all pretty much have that figured out right now? No, we do not have that figured out. We are waiting for everything in the governor's executive, his latest executive order to be revealed. Superintendents will break that down. And then we're going to have another administrative meeting um, at the beginning of next week. To, to discuss some of those decisions. I mean, there was just no way to do that without truly getting all of his um, his orders and, and, you know, just getting some clarity. Because while registering for pre-K and kindergarten is important, right now we've truly got to figure out how to close out this year properly. One other story I saw, and this is something that's been bubbling under the surface. We've talked about it on the show in past episodes, and it has to do with the um, SAT and the ACT. And wow. I think what we're seeing is, you know, there's kind of been this rumbling of do we need this test? Should universities put so much stock in the results of this test? And I think we're seeing this is about to be a trial run, a pilot, if you will, of okay. universities saying, you know what? We don't need that score this time around. Apparently, several universities are saying if you're applying, you know, as a freshman in the fall of 2021, you don't necessarily have to submit an SAT or an ACT. It's an optional um, it's submission. So what do you think of that? Well, let's take it back a step and understand why they even um, approach that. It's because the testing sites have shut down. Right. So because of that, you can't take an exam to worry about college admission and to be honest with you, I think it's a great idea. There are students who, who are extremely bright, can handle college level um, work, but they're not great test takers. Anxiety, you know, just takes them over and they struggle in the testing environment, yet they can excel in the classroom. And the same goes for other areas. Let me tell you, um, 
The Praxis exam, which is required to become a licensed teacher, has also been suspended. And there are there's such a great need for teachers. You know, the, the teacher shortage has been an issue for a while across the nation, but mm-hmm. it recently hit and is hurting um, in the South in particular. And so right now we are seeing a surge of degreed adults applying to the alternate route programs um, at the local universities. And I think it's a great idea. They're missing some very important pedagogy and skills, but if we can train them and they are able to come on and help us in our classrooms, that's going to be great for students. And I just think it's a good idea because it opens up to those students who just feel college is not an option for them because they can't, you know, score in the top percentile on on an exam. Agreed. And and I think the universities are going to drive this, right? Like if the universities can find a way to evaluate students without these tests, SAT or the ACT, then then they'll they'll drive the train on it. I also wonder one thing that we haven't heard a lot about, I do not see this reported, but I have a feeling that universities are going to be in a really tough spot in the coming years. They, They are losing a lot of money, I think, um, in terms of you take the athletic programs and then probably just, you know, there's other ways they, they generate revenue, but kids have to be on campus to do that. And they're not. That's correct. Um, so That's correct. I think we might see some fallout. In fact, I, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I, I worry about the fallout of the money that our government. No, we've got to be realistic about it. I mean, yeah. let's talk about the sporting events. They've already stated that they don't think any uh, sporting events that draw, you know, large crowds will be able to happen before 2021. So you're already putting all fall sports at risk. And we all know football is the major, major fundraising source for right. all universities. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's going to be on professional level, too. How do you convince um, and this isn't really the topic of our show, but how do you convince guys who are making multi-million dollars a year to push up against each other and breathe in each other's face. Like, like they're not going to want to play until there's some reassurance that they're going to be okay if they get sick. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know. I think there's a show we might need to dedicate to that in the future because as June gets here, which is when they're normally in football camps, they're not happening. So they're not even physically going to be prepared. Um, they may work out at home. We're watching videos of the, you know, Olympic participants that are still exercising and lifting and working out at home. Mm-hmm. But for football or any other, um, you know, contact type sport, it requires practice together. Right. So I, I don't know. It, it, we still have such a long ways to go. It's like we see some glimmers of hope. And today, again, um, this is Friday, April 17th. And and there was a good news headline yesterday. I don't know if everyone's paying attention, but this company, Gilead, apparently has a medicine that they are seeing some positive results in the clinical trials in the Chicago area, from what I understand. And I think that's what's kind of caused the stock market to bounce back a little bit today. So, I mean, if, if there was a... Do you know what what medication that is because I've been so concerned about all the articles about the patients that are suffering with the you know, lupus that yeah, yeah their the, medication is being used and so they can't get their medication. Yeah, this one's different and I'm not going to pronounce it correctly. I think it's remdesivir or something along okay. those lines. Okay. And um, it, it apparently is somewhat promising. They've only been giving it to very sick patients and they've had good results from it. Um, but they haven't actually made an official statement on it. Apparently somebody from the company was speaking about it and the story leaked, uh, last night and that's when that came out. So I don't think it's, I think it's a treatment, right? It's not, it's not a cure. Um, but I think if, 
you, you, we knew there was a medicine that if Nick got this or Christina got this, you can take this and you're not going to die. It'll, it'll save your life. Um, you're still going to be sick. It's like the flu, but take this, you know, Tamiflu and you'll, it won't be as bad that that could be a game changer. It could give people some confidence to, to go out and do those things they have to do. We need something, but one of the biggest things we need right now is we need more testing. Right. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, I, I've been in debates with my family about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it needs to be basically if you're going to open up, let's just say a restaurant and one of your employees gets uh, COVID-19, you need to know, you need to have the reassurance that you can contact your local state department of health and say, Hey, you know what? I had an employee get this. I need 40 tests for all my waiters and all my staff. Um, and they need to come and we need results fast. And I don't think we're there yet. Are we? No. We're not yeah. there, but let me just throw this positive out there. Some our recent article that I've seen, and I'm just, my heart is so full. While we've lost so many of our fellow Americans to the coronavirus, we have also seen um, hundreds of thousands of, of people recover. And I just want right. to you know point that out, that our frontline workers, our medical workers, they are um, doing a phenomenal job. And there's just not enough attention on all of the wonderful people who are recovering and surviving and going back home to their families. And, and part of that challenge of telling those stories is that often cameras and reporters aren't allowed in the hospital to see the great work that these Absolutely. nurses and doctors are doing. And and even the people who, the custodial staff cleaning the hospital, I mean, Absolutely. also putting themselves um, in harm's way on a daily basis. Um, so we don't necessarily see it. And sometimes we're such visual beings that if we don't see it, we don't realize it's happening. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on the same time with the recoveries, it's, you know, unless somebody wants to talk about their recovery story, it's hard to tell that story um, for the news. So, so hopefully, you know, some of that will continue to leak out. But there, there is some silver lining there. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Are, are you ready for the uh, Bright Idea? Always, always ready. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to challenge us on how we think about the foundational reading skills. Heidi Mesmer is a professor in literacy in the School of Education at Virginia Tech, and she was recently published in Ed Week, where she says there are four foundational read- reading skills but she points out that we usually only talk about phonics. Heidi, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks so much. You say that there's a misconception that foundational skills equals phonics, but but it's more to it than that, right? What are we missing? Right. Well, um, I, I want to kind of jump ahead and just say that the titling on this piece, the original titling about there being four foundational skills, why we only talk about phonics, was actually not my, um, my choice. Um, oh, that was Ed Week that jumped in and said we wanted this, I guess. Yeah. And, and I, um, the real concept is that um, the, the foundational skills are an integrated whole and they have to be taught together. And so the, the point is not to say that phonics is not important. Um, of the collection of foundational skills, which would be fluency, um, phonics, print concepts, um, and phonological awareness, those are the, the ones that are mentioned in the common core. Of those, phonics is definitely very, very important. Um, you have to teach kids the letter sound and the morphemic um, mappings for them to be able to um, decode words and do that automatically. The problem is that the focus sometimes in classrooms and even in programs 
is so heavy on the phonics piece that it is isolated from the other elements of the foundational skills that um, give meaning to phonics skills, right? Mm -hmm. For example, um, I've been in situations where kids are just learning those letters, learning those letter sounds. Um, in fact, I remember being in an, a preschool um, and there were three and four-year-olds and I was so impressed because these children actually knew their letters and they actually knew the letter sounds. Um, and so I bent down and started talking to a little girl and I said, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. I said, let's write the word bat, bat, bat. How would you write bat? Mm -hmm. What letter would you use? And she just looked at me like, what do you mean? And the reason that that happened is that she had learned that knowledge. Her teacher had told her, when I show you this picture of this graphic, you're going to say this sound, buh, and you're going to say this name, B. And she had memorized it like a smiley little preschooler. And she had smiled back at the teacher and the teacher was happy and the, she was proud and everybody was. But the teacher had never explained to her why she was doing that or, or what the whole purpose was. So the foundational skills have to be integrated with understanding what I would call print concepts and then beyond phonics, automatizing and getting faster at word reading, and then even before phonics, doing phonological awareness. Okay, so let's talk about phonological awareness a little bit. We'll dive into that because I think in, in your article, you said that you actually observed several classes and you only saw really, I guess, one lesson where phonological awareness was taking place. Kind of explain what that is and why it's being left out maybe. Right. So phonological awareness is not phonics. Phonological awareness is not phonics. Phonological awareness is not phonics. That's so annoying that I just said that three times. <laughs> A little technique I use to really hit a point home. And honestly, if your listeners don't remember much from this, I'd like them to remember the integrated part, and I'd also like them to remember that point. Phonological awareness is actually um, the ability to orally identify and manipulate units of sounds or um, to hear those differences. So it's just the sound part. So, for example, if you were to say to a child orally without any letters, how do fish and fun start? They would be able to tell you that the sound that they hear is Mm -hmm. As it turns out, that skill, the ability to hear words and to kind of break them into these sound parts is crucial to learning in an alphabetic language, to learning phonics. It's like the first part of phonics. Phonics is putting that sound f with the symbol F. But if you don't first have an insight or recognition that words actually have these smaller constituent parts, the whole system makes no sense to you. And so what should teachers be doing? Like, can you give me a, I know it's tough to, you can't write a whole lesson while we're sitting here in a podcast, right. but, but what should teachers be doing in the classroom to get that point across to, to students? Right. So I've written a book called Letter Lessons and First Words. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I have five um, kind of parts of a, of a phonics lesson. Um, and this is not anything new. Um, this is all very research-based and everybody who does phonics really does it. Um, but one of the things that I say you have to have in your phonics lesson is something I call hear it. 
and which is essentially phonemic awareness instruction that precedes or comes before phonics instruction. And I call it hear it just because that's a more um, friendly term than phonological awareness, right. which is so similar to phonics, right? Mm-hmm. When hear it, teachers will kind of front load their phonics. They'll take away the letters and they'll take away the magnetic dry erase boards and the kids will just be using their their listening and speaking skills. And the teacher will say, I'm going to say three words. Tell me which one is different. Fish, fun, man. And then the kids have to listen. Or we're going to play a game. Larry only likes things that start with L. Let's see what he likes. Larry likes lemons. Now you go. Larry likes ladybugs. Larry likes lollipops. Larry likes lemons. Larry likes lions. And and the kids play with the language. Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of thing should come before you're then showing the kids the symbol that goes with that sound. You um, work at the School of Education at Virginia Tech. So I imagine you're working with future teachers, right? Right. I guess. And then you said you observe classrooms and you're not seeing this. So where's the disconnect? Like, how did we get here? Are you pounding home that message with, I guess, your students? And and why are other teachers maybe not getting that message? Um, the phonological awareness research findings came out in the 90s and they hit hard. And um, we had a lot of really strong programs like Road to the Code and and several others. And I think what has happened is it's kind of just faded from our our focus and our consciousness. Um, and so I think just reiterating it um, is really important. And, and I'll also say um, I am a big believer. I've read David Kilpatrick's book, which is called Essentials of Assessing, Preventing and Overcoming Reading Difficulties. Um, it's just a wonderful kind of compilation of studies. And one of the things he points out, and I actually said this in my book as well, is that in some respects, people are kind of blending phonemic and phonological awareness together with phonics in such a way that um, the phonemic awareness and the phonological awareness work is, is just not even happening. So we just need to go back to reminding students to do that. And we need it to be a focused part of every phonics lesson. It doesn't take that much time. Kids can have a really fun time doing it. Um, but the, the research is incredibly formidable that we must do that to make phonics instruction effective. Let's hit a, a different foundational concept, I guess, when it comes for reading skills. And there's one you mentioned earlier is Prince Concepts. Can you tell us about that? Right. So with my my little friends in the, that three-year-old preschool, um, one of the things we do with, with kids without even realizing it is we talk to them about the specifics of the system before orienting them to the system itself. So print concepts is essentially um, explaining to kids how this whole kind of literacy written language thing works. It's teaching them things like when you look at a book, the message is carried in the print Um, And that message is consistent every time. Like if I read the words in a book today, tomorrow, next week, it's going to be the same. It's like print moves from left to right in our language. Um, 
It's the fundamental understanding, which we all just assume as adults, that words are collections of letters that are separated by white space. You you talk about another foundational reading school, which is fluency. And I guess this is a little bit more advanced. This is further along in the process, right? Yeah. So fluency is um, what we would say, um, it's just like getting that orthographic mapping of the letter sounds or the morphemes um, automatized. Um, as it turns out, um, skilled readers do not sound out every word at all, not even close. What we do is we encounter them hundreds and thousands of times and they become automatized and we access them um, in, in, you know, milliseconds. So fluency is moving students into efficient, accurate, and faster reading. Um, and that's absolutely essential to becoming a skilled reader because what we know is that people who read slow read less, people who read slow get frustrated more, and people who read slow just um, are often going to just give up and become very demoralized. Mm-hmm. So after kids have gotten to a certain place in their phonics instruction, you need to I call it pump up the volume. And by that, I mean the reading volume, reading and rereading volume so that kids are starting to just read a ton of words and they get more quickly and efficiently. I'll give you a quick little story. Um, I'll give you a couple of parameters. First of all, in the middle of first grade, kids are typically reading quite slowly at 25 words correct per minute. But by the end of first grade, we would expect them to exceed 50 words correct per minute. So they have to double their speed. And then, you know, skilled readers, adult readers read way over 150 words correct per minute orally and over 200 words correct um, per minute silently. And I'm just I'm reading. There's a great new meta analysis out there about um, silent reading rates. So. What teachers have to do is once kid and kids at the first grade level, and sometimes it happens later depending on the instruction, is they have to, to, to back away a little bit from the heavy phonics into a lot more fluency work. I was working with a school in a rural area, um, not in Virginia, but in another state. Those teachers were just nailing it with the phonics. They were doing so well. And they got to a point where they were overdoing it. And by the middle of the year, they, they had kids, you know, their first graders could read very simple words with blends and digraphs and short vowels. And, and they just kept hitting the phonics. And I said, look, you've got to shift and get these kids reading a lot of, of books um, and getting them more efficient. And so is that the key just to have, you know, students drill, 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 and then that fluency will come or is there a little bit more to it than that? Oh, well, you know, those of us in education can't stand that word drill. Okay. But, and in fact, I, I actually have a little um, uh, interesting little discussion about drill versus overlearning in my book. So um, overlearning is, is kind of what we want. And Overlearning is where you read, you learn it to the point of really um, beyond, you practice it a little bit beyond mastery, right? So you right. kind of got it and you go for, for more reps. Um, overlearning is, uh, that's overlearning. Drill is usually the same way every time. So the reason that I'm not 
a fan of drilling is just because that that won't generalize or transfer. But that wasn't really the question you were asking me. You're, you're, well, I guess yeah, the question is, what are you a fan of in that in this regard? Right. Well, with fluency, I'm a fan of once you get kids to a point where they can read uh, 25 to 30 words correct per minute, and they can sound out a simple CVC word, meaning constant, vowel, constant word, or ones that have blends and digraphs on the beginning and the end. In other words, once the kid has a command of a number of simple words that they can sound out and a number of high-frequency words, then my suggestion is start to move to having kids reread longer passages, reading to each other, doing radio reading, taking it home and reading, and, and, and having a wide variety of materials on their reading level so that they're you know, accessing hundreds and hundreds of words each week during that, after that point where they've really kind of learned how to decode a lot of single syllable words. If somebody wants to learn more about this, of course, you have your book, um, Letter Lessons and First Words, Phonics Foundations That Work. Is that available at Amazon? Yep, it's available on Amazon. I'm also on Twitter at H-A-E Mesmer. Um, and I love um, co- communicating with teachers out there. I love questions. Yeah, educators are phenomenal on Twitter, I, I've seen. I mean, even yeah. especially during today's day and age where we're all separated, I've seen some great conversations happening there. Now, th- this book, what made you decide to, to write it? I think w- what I was seeing in, in the collection of phonics materials that are out there um, was kind of um, deeply divided between almost things that had almost no structure, right? Like just kind of figure it out. There's a big phonics cottage industry out there. Teachers pay teachers and all these other places. And then I found kind of the opposite, like just idiot proofing curriculum, like don't think, just do. So what I have done is kind of struck a balance. I have a scope and sequence and an assessment. The the book has three units, letter lessons, first words, and beyond first words that cover basic developmental milestones in teaching phonics. So you can pick it up and you can follow the scope and sequence and teach. There's a five-part phonics lesson that's laid out, which, you know, you can use regardless of the scope and sequence. Um, I also will say that one of the things that I'm most proud of, and Nell Duke really helped in this because she edited the book, um, is that it is research-based in that when I say something, I'm pointing to their research to support that. And there were a lot of really wonderful and interesting conversations that Nell and I had about how I was doing that and where I was right and where I was wrong. Um, so uh, that's part, I'm very proud. The, the third thing I'll say that um, that the book has that I just am so, I don't see out there is there are a collection of videos that show you um, us doing various techniques in addition to whole group phonics lessons. So we've translated some of these things into whole group and you can see us working with kindergarten and first grade kids playing phonological awareness games using dry erase boards. Um, I, I talk about book walks. I talk about, you know, there's been a lot of national conversation about not using the three queuing systems and, and not prompting students to guess and so I take that on with um, what, you know, word prompting, which is what do you say when a kid says the wrong word or doesn't know which word to say? 
Was there ever a time where these foundational reading skills were were being done right? Like, was it was there a decade or a generation of students where this this was a primary focus and it wasn't kind of lost? Well, I I don't know that I'm really qualified. I I will say that despite I think what we found empirically about reading first, I do think that there was um, some structure in that initiative that was helping uh, teachers and schools to know what they should be doing. In today's climate, what I've found has been lost is phonological awareness. I found, um, you know, Ed Reports did this wonderful analysis of, of programs. They're, they're a great, um, they vet a large number of curriculum materials and they found that only 7% of elementary school teachers used at least one full comprehensive ELA um, material. A lot of the materials don't have print concepts. They don't have fluency in them. So the materials that people are buying, you know, don't have all of those things. Um, yeah. So the, the one other thing that I would say is, and I, this is just a, a mention in my article, I'm not an expert at this, but we absolutely need to have better instruction in how to decode multisyllabic words. We talk about systematic and explicit phonics instruction, but we need systematic and explicit morphological instruction, or we need systematic and explicit instruction about how to decode multisyllabic words into third grade and beyond, because those words outnumber um, single syllable words in advanced text four to one. Well, well, about that multisyllabic words, I mean, why is the ball getting dropped there? Yeah, I think the ball is getting dropped just because people are overemphasizing phonics, including the news media, and have translated the term science of reading to mean phonics and phonemic awareness. Science of comprehension. There's a science of morphological multisyllabic word decoding. There's a science of writing instruction. There's a science of motivation. So there's an overemphasis on phonics that is blinding people to the need of of multisyllabic. Now, some people would include decoding multisyllabic words in phonics, but honestly, uh, multisyllabic words are often uh, made up of different meaning parts, prefixes, suffixes, endings like ing, er, ed, s, and teaching kids that is really important. Well, it sounds like your book is perfect for any uh, educator that is working with students that are learning how to read, you know. Uh, so uh, kudos to you for putting this together and, and kind of really diving into this. Um, Heidi Mesmer, we appreciate you coming on Class Dismissed. Thanks. Again, that book is Letter Lessons and First Words, Phonics, Foundations That Work. And our guest is Heidi Mesmer. Uh, we appreciate your time. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.